When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter. We live in troubled constitutional times. Um, I thought I'd start with an uncontroversial statement. Um, and um, we tried to draft a motion which someone might oppose, but we couldn't on the subject of MPs' expenses. So what we thought we'd do was, was go for a sort of um, a rapid gunfire at you from the platform. Then you can come back at us, those of you who survived the fusillade. Um, the um, proposal um, is, in effect, that Britain needs uh, constitutional reform. Um, I'm not going to pretend to um, guess which side of the uh, argument the various speakers are on, um, because they're going in more or less random order. Everybody on the platform is distinguished. I won't even say they're distinguished, uh, but we'll start with the uh, historian, uh, David Cameron. Simon, very much. Good evening, everyone. Um, we only have seven minutes each, and seven minutes is not a long time in which to try to fix the British Constitution. So forgive me for no pleasantries, um, except to quote a phrase that's been much quoted in the last few weeks. Lord Macaulay, we know of no spectacle more ridiculous than the British public in one of its periodic fits of morality. Uh, one should always worry about that phrase when everybody gets outraged, and everybody seems to be outraged at the moment. Um, the question, I think, uh, bearing in mind Macaulay's warning, is, is the outrage real, or what is the outrage really about? Uh, ostensibly, of course, it's about MPs' expenses, and maybe it's really about MPs' expenses as well, but perhaps we ought to think more broadly about what else is going on. It seems to me there is outrage because there is disillusion with the present Labour government and perhaps with the Tory predecessor because both of those long-serving governments are deemed to have got us into the economic mess we're in at the moment. And I think the conjunction of economic mess and constitutional anxiety is something that's particularly significant. Outrage is what's deemed to be the low level of MPs, the low level of the Cabinet, too many peers in the Cabinet, no written constitution, lots of outrage about all of those things, and further outrage, I think, about bankers who've helped to get us into this mess and newspapers whose headlines become ever more shrill as they, they try to shore up their circulation and revenue at a time when the newspaper industry is in crisis. There are lots of interesting agendas on the part of newspapers and truth and morality are not the only ones. So it seems to me there's lots of rage about lots of things. There's not much time for the present government to fix it, and we have no idea what the next government, if it's David Cameron's Conservatives, is going to do. So perhaps all we can do in the meantime is talk and debate, which is why we're here tonight. Can I offer a brief historical perspective, since that's what I do for a living, and it might help frame a bit about what's coming later. Will you turn off that mobile phone? You've already been told, and it's taking up precious time of my seven minutes to tell you to turn it off. <laughs> first thing to notice is that the British Constitution is very unusual because of its historic continuity. It is not the case historically in Britain, at least it hasn't been since the middle of the 17th century, that we regularly tear up constitutions and start again. That's partly because we don't have one to tear up, but it's also because Britain has not experienced war, invasion, defeat or independence as a former, col former colony. And those are the circumstances under which written constitutions historically have got written. They don't get written on the whole if you are a country in existence for a very long time. Second point to note historically is that Britain has never really been all that democratic a nation, though we like to think we have been. In 1914, only 60% of adult males had the vote in this country and no women. That's to say the franchise of allegedly democratic Britain in 1914 was about 30% of the population, and they only elected the lower house, not the upper house. Britain only becomes a democracy, uh, at least as far as the lower house is concerned, uh, in 1928 or 29. But on the whole, democracy is not what the British do, even though they think they do. 
Thirdly, historically, the general attitude to politics in Britain ranges, I think, from indifference to loathing, and that's always been the case, and there's nothing particularly new about now. We're told we're cynical now, but look at Walpole, look at Gladstone, look at Stanley Baldwin. Cynicism almost unbridled during those periods. We're told we're corrupt now in a way we weren't before, but look at something called old corruption in the 1800s and 1810s, when people have got their hands in the till in a way that seem, makes what's going on now seem like petty pilfering. Lloyd George sold peerages across the counter like packets of tea. As for low turnout, there's almost always been a low turnout in this country, either because people didn't have the vote or if they had the vote, they didn't choose to use it. And periods of high turnout after the Second World War are historically completely unusual. As for interest in political parties, it's important to remember that for at least the last 20 years, the National Trust has had more members than all major political parties put together. (laughs) That is not a plug for our chairman, I ought to say, who is chairman of other things too. But it is worth mentioning that some people might think it's bad because this shows people are indifferent to politics. Some people might think it's good because actually cultivating your own garden and caring about the environment is far more important than anything that goes on at Westminster. (laughs) Those are perspectives we should not lose sight of in the febrile debates that we appear to be engaged in at the moment. So where are we now and where are we going to go? I think the MPs' expenses business will be fixed. Corruption actually is quite easy to fix. Old corruption came to an end. Peerages were no longer sold, at least not as overtly as they were in Lloyd George's time. And I think it's probably the case that MPs' expenses will be fixed. But what about the rest of it? Apathy. Can we fix that? I doubt it. Everybody is obliged to vote in Australia. They're compelled to vote. I don't think politicians are held in higher esteem as a result. Probably the opposite. PR, well, Gordon Brown says he might do it, but he won't be here long enough to do it, and we've no evidence whatsoever to suggest that David Cameron's interested. Better MPs, we'd have to pay them more. Does anybody want to pay them more at the moment? I don't think so. Better MPs would have to check the executive more. Is any government going to let them do that? I don't think so. Reform the House of Lords, when, how, where, who wants to do it? The answer to all of those questions is no. And in any case, on the basis of the dazzling reputation of one elected house at the moment, do we want another elected house? I'm not entirely clear that we do. Reform the cabinet, bring in outsiders. Outsiders have been brought in and they're criticised because they're all peers and one of them is Lord Sugar of Sweet Tooth or whatever his name is. That doesn't seem a particular option either. Written constitution, I think it's probably a good idea, but it's not going to happen. Getting written constitutions, except under the circumstances with which I began, is exceptionally difficult, and the weakness of written constitutions is they are very often inflexible, and you simply cannot change them except by having a revolution, and I doubt if anybody's particularly interested in that. (laughs) So my brief conclusions as a historian are as follows. As a historian, one can point to precedents and provide perspectives which are, I think, essential for informing and setting the limits to what the public debate might discuss and might achieve. There is, I think, a very big gap to bridge between being in favour of change and actually making change happen. And while I think it is true that short-term outrage may be the only way to generate momentum for reform, short-term outrage is no adequate basis on which to undertake lasting reform. Thank you. Thank you, David, and thank you for your admirable timekeeping. Um, I think the House of Lords now gets the right to reply. Uh, lawyer, Helena Kennedy. Thank you. Thank you. Well, um, I just wanted to start by saying that, yes, there is a great deal of public outrage out there. And in the last uh, couple of weeks, I've spoken at a number of very big public meetings, not dissimilar to this, and people are feeling pretty raw. And... David is right. Some of it is about the expectation that people had that it would be Parliament as the great institution that would hold to account other institutions when they failed, like the city, like the banking system, and suddenly to find that actually uh, uh, politicians themselves were abusing uh, uh, the system of expenses, somehow stuck in people's throats as an example of how Parliament was failing to do the very thing it should be doing as a central uh, institution. And it is right that that this is not actually something completely new. Um, Three years ago, I chaired an inquiry called the Power Inquiry for the Roundtree Trusts, and they were looking at... Um, something that, was, that they felt had come bubbling up to the surface, which was 
a, a reduction in the number of people taking part in, uh, uh, in joining political parties, taking part in uh, elections, voting, and so on. And they wanted to know what was happening in our society, were there real changes taking place, and were the ones that should concern us. And the group who uh, were involved in the power inquiry were all parties and no parties, and they were included a significant number of young people, um, which uh, was a very important element in it. We went around the country. It was not self-selecting audiences who tend to, on the whole, be like yourselves, interested and concerned about the state of democracy. Often we would turn up and we would go to local colleges, we would go to events that were taking place in local communities, and then ask those questions about whether people had voted in the last election, and if not, why not? Were they in political parties? What did they feel about politicians and politics? And the answers that they give are very interesting, and it's not that they're apathetic. People in Britain are not apathetic. They're concerned about all manner of political issues. What they do feel alienated from is formal politics. In Britain, there in fact remains a very rich civil society in which people were very concerned about the war and whatever their views were, but large numbers against it. They're <clears throat> very concerned about issues like the countryside and went out and demonstrated in that. They take part in, uh, in all manner of political protests. They're involved in prison visiting and sit on juries and they take part in reading schemes at schools or for people who have um, problems with literacy. They volunteer in all manner of ways and they raise money for their schools. They sit as governors on schools. So the British public, by and large, are fairly active and they do have political views on all manner of things. What they're disillusioned about is formal politics. And what came through for us, talking to people, were a number of uh, very clear things. That they are concerned about uh, the quality of politicians. They feel that there are too many people that, to, to them, they felt had never done other things. They'd never had real jobs. They felt there were too many people who did seem to be in it for themselves. They, they often contradicted what they felt about their own local MP, whom they often felt was a decent person. But they, they did feel very strongly that there was too much self-serving. They felt that... Uh, the evidence that came through was that we were seeing a hollowing out of our democracy. They felt that politicians, by and large, became too craven to their parties and often voted with their party rather than with their conscience or what they thought was in the best interest of our society as a whole, that they became voting fodder. They also felt that they were too careerist and that they were too concerned about how you got on the career ladder of getting a job rather than really looking after your constituency as your main concern and that that being fulfilling enough. They also described, and although this wasn't the language they used, what they saw as being a kind of nothing to choose, a vanilla flavour in politics, where the political parties had become had merged into one almost, where none of them had very distinguishing features and those old uh, ideologies had disappeared, but there was a strong sense that somehow, while they didn't like tribalism in politics, that they didn't know what polit the political parties stood for anymore. Um, and it was interesting, when we spoke to the politicians, politicians themselves always claimed that it was about apathy. The, the political elite always, and I'm afraid I would include lawyers, politicians, and historians, and all manner of people in that elite, but very often it's described as apathy. But in fact, people were not, in our uh, experience, that apathetic. It was much more about a disillusionment with the form of politics. And politicians are very keen to see it as being about apathy because it takes the criticism away from them. Jack Straw recently uh, described what, was in, what he was involved in as being executive democracy, that we had moved on to executive democracy, meaning that it was basically about managing things, that they were having to, that one set of people would do it for a certain period of time, then it would change over and you'd have a different set of people managing Britain PLC. Well, I think our democracy is about something more than that. Our report recommended a number of things, and, and there are things that I think we, the people, should be talking about today, because I actually do think there's something f seriously wrong, and it's not just about expenses. That is simply a symptom of a much deeper malaise. That Parliament itself is not working well enough. That our select committees do not uh, manage well enough to do the job that it used to be that the Parliament itself did of keeping the ex holding the executive to account. That, uh, that we now have ways in which that is being considered, and no doubt we'll see a certain amount of tweaking at the edges, but that itself is not good enough. That what we came up with were a number of, of, of um, important issues, which were about the way in which power seeps away from Parliament and is in fact used by 
newspaper magnets by the corporate world who often have more power than, in fact, uh, uh, politicians do. But we ourselves get very little information about who is lobbying and when that takes place, and it should be much more transparent. One of the things that people spoke about was that they didn't like the idea of non-doms being in the House of Lords, people there who are not elected, who don't even pay tax in Britain, but have the chance of being part of the legislature. It is all wrong. That there's a revolving door where people have a one minute are a cabinet minister dealing with health, and the next minute they're out, but they're taken onto the board of a private uh, health company, and they're sitting on the other side of the table from ministers. And, and that something is corrupting in that process. And so what people really also spoke about was that their vote often didn't count. That if they were in a constituency that was always Labour or always Conservative, and they perhaps were of the opposite persuasion or were a Liberal Democrat or a Green, that their vote didn't count for anything. So what was the point of voting? And so we feel very strongly that, there sh that votes should count and that that's why we have to look at our voting system and reforming it in ways that would make people's vote have value, even if it is that it is a constituency which traditionally might always go to one of the main parties, but that somehow your vote could be counted in the scheme of things. So that what we are now launching is a campaign called Real Change, and I'm hoping that all of you will take a look at uh, uh, taking part in that. And the idea is that not it shouldn't be politicians who decide on the rules of the game. We, the people, should be putting, having our input into what we want to see happening to our politics and to the nature of our political system. And if the House of Lords is going to be reformed, we should be saying how we want it to be reformed. If we're going to see a change in the voting system, Gordon Brown shouldn't be telling us how that should be done. We should be informing that debate and there should be a people's convention to look at the way in which our political system might change for the better. Thank you. The next columnist and author, Peter Oborn. Um, yeah, there are two uh, propositions in this debate. One is that something wrong in the state of Britain, and the other is our parliamentary democracy needs root and branch reform. It would seem natural that A, B flowed from A, but I'm going to argue that it doesn't. I'm going to argue that A is true, that there is something rotten in the state of Britain, but I'm going to argue paradoxically that our parliamentary democracy does not need root and branch reform. In fact, I'm going to argue that it needs restoration because the real problem is that we have turned our back in all kinds of ways on parliamentary democracy and that is the problem which we're confronting today and that is the underlying reason for the expenses scandal. And if I have time, if I, I still got time at the end, I'm going to challenge David Canadine's historical analysis um, I studied under David Canadine at universities. As you can tell, he's a brilliant teacher, but fundamentally flawed in many ways. <laughs> and um, and uh, now, um, <laughs> I, I, and I, the first thing I disagree uh, with David about is that I, I do think that the um, I do think that the scandal of the last six weeks is unbelievably important. I, I, I don't think it's just a question of newspaper headlines. I don't think it's a question of false outrage. I don't think it's hypocritical. I think that something really fundamental has happened, that uh, we have seen something which quite perceptive analysts of the British political system have been aware of for some time, that's that something has gone wrong with the uh, political class, which are governing elite. It's turned into a self-serving, venal uh, political class who, which pursues its own private interests rather than uh, public good. The idea of, of public duty and public service has been lost. And you see that in the way in which the political class, and it's now extremely well-documented, going right up to the top, going up to cabinet level, going into the shadow cabinet. It's a collusive cross-party appropriation of the resources of the state uh, and the taxpayers' money. Uh, and uh, there are various mechanisms they've used. We learnt about one is to have a special tax system of their own to enable them to uh, escape paying capital gains tax. Another is the use of taxpayers' money to profiteer uh, on the property market. The other one is outright fraud, where you have 
you claim for mortgages which don't exist, or you claim for goods for your second home which you send to your first home. That's very widespread, by the way. Um, I think that uh, the evidence suggests that it's not just a few bad apples, that perhaps half of the MPs in the House of Commons are in some way or another corrupt, and a small number of those are clearly criminal. And that is a fundamental breach of the trust between our parliamentary elite and the British people. Um, and I haven't, I see Michael Rifkin was whispering to his neighbour there. I haven't looked into his um, parliamentary expenses, but he's just reminded me I better do that. Um, <laughs> now, the re reaction, what is very interesting is that the political class thinks that it's evaded the problem. It, think, it takes the, the Canadine analysis of the question of newspaper headlines and people again are going to forget about it. And you can see that, interestingly, in the Gordon Brown reshuffle. Brown did not, has not sacked a single member of his cabinet for, uh, for these disgusting breaches of ordinary common morality. Uh, in fact, he's retained the Chancellor of the Exchequer, who changed his, uh, the res his main residence four times in four years uh, and double-claimed on his expenses uh, and had to pay money back. Astonishing message to ordinary uh, law-abiding taxpayers. David Cameron has retained in his cabinet Francis Moore, Alan Duncan, uh, Michael Gove, people who have clearly abused the system in an egregious way. We have an illegitimate political elite which is contemptuous of the taxpayer and are determined to get away with it. What they have done, actually, they single up various minor figures on both parties, this Lady Moran in Luton or Elliot Morley or the woeful Julie Kirkbride, uh, that wretched Peter Vigors, etc. But, um, but the real people, the people at the heart of the system, all remain there. And what are they doing? What they've done somehow is call this, this stunt of constitutional reform. They have called for constitutional reform as the answer to their own fraud and peculation. I'm not completely against constitutional reform. I'm going to make a couple of arguments against it, but it's the wrong answer to the wrong question at this very moment in time. In fact, it's a massive distraction tactic. We need to concentrate uh, on the question at issue at the moment. There's no, it, I'll just deal very briefly. It's like, rather like a criminal who gets hands caught in the till. Police nab him and he says, sorry, we, the, the, it isn't the problem is that I was stealing the money. The problem is the system of criminal law in this country needs to be reformed. Now, for instance, we'll probably get Vernon Bogdan arguing for PR or some form of it. It's quite incredible the Prime Minister's doing it as well. Now, that's unbelievable. If you study the PR systems in continental Europe, there's no evidence at all that it uh, has anything to do with fighting, that, that PR systems are less corrupt than other, others. And to, do, to talk about the introduction of AV and PR in the week where fascism has had its most important electoral success ever in Britain. Seems to me to be quite amazing. Nick Griffin is a more significant historical figure already than Sir Oswald Mosley. He's got elected MEPs in the European Parliament. He has a form of legitimacy which Mosley never had in the 1930s and which the National Front uh, never attained in the 1970s. Look at the, another one of these wacky propositions to distract our attention. An elected House of Lords. Now, I don't know how many of you followed the debate, fascinating debates in the 1960s where Enoch Powell and Michael Foote made that fantastic joint point that uh, an elected House of Lords will diminish the sovereignty of the House of Commons. It would be very perplexing. I'm greatly in favour of an all-appointed House of Lords. I, I, I relish the presence in the House of Lords of magnificent figures like Baroness Kennedy, who would never be in the House of Lords if it was elected. I'm just ghastly party hacks. Uh, the House of Lords has done wonderful things on an, elect, on an appointed basis over the last five years. It's, it's fought off the control orders. It's saved... Um, it's, uh, it has been... It's, it's fighting the ID card. It's a great repository of British values at the moment because you have a, a non-political class figures exist there with a decent sense of British, uh, British democracy. And I, think, and I think that that is another bogus reform. What we need to do in the short term is very, very simple. 
We need to make sure that the people who have stolen from the taxpayer, who have abused the public trust, uh, are brought to account. Unfortunately, I haven't got time for my critique of David Canadine's historical analysis, <laughs> uh, but we'll try and find a different moment for that. Thank you very much. And now a man who's written a wonderful, uh, um, a very detailed, lengthy study of democracy, John Keane. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, um, may I use, uh, please, the language of public meetings in support of parliamentary reform two centuries ago? Citizenesses and citizens. Believe it or not, it was true. You will know that radical champions of the 1832 Reform Bill dubbed their moribund system of government old corruption. It was a system that was symbolized by, for example, no representation of thriving industrial cities like Manchester and Birmingham, and by pocket boroughs. Um, among my favorites was Gatton, Surrey Village that returned one MP but had just one voter. And uh, New Shoreham, you may know well, whose wealthy voters formed an association known as the Christian Club, which specialised in the auctioning off of the job of representing the borough to the highest bidder. There's a good idea. Faced with a looming crisis of public finances, we need to discuss that, I think. Our country is, I believe, gripped by a new corruption fuelled by a parliamentary sinecure scandal made worse by a rudderless government in much deeper trouble than John Major's. Here's my six-and-three-quarter-minute proposition. The political crisis we face is much more than a parliamentary expenses fiddle or last week's council and uh, European election results or the fact that in those elections, barely one in 20 eligible voters actually supported the government. The new corruption is the public expression, I believe, of a great historical change that few have so far spotted, a transformation that demands a fundamental shift in the way we think about democracy and why I think um, fixing democracy or repairing it is not um, the way to think about it. I want to suggest that we live in an age of what I call monetary democracy, not monetary, but monetary democracy. The old Westminster system is finished, Monetary democracy is defined by the growing role of extra-parliamentary power monitoring and power controlling devices. Since 1945, when, remember, there were only 12 democracies left on the face of the earth, about 100 new types of power scrutinizing institutions have begun to alter the political geometry of democracy. Citizens' assemblies, forums, summits, parliaments for minorities, judicial review, citizens' juries are some examples. Others include think tanks, public integrity bodies, human rights organizations, blogging and other new forms of media scrutiny, as well as cross-border parliaments and open methods of coordination of the kind practiced in the European Union. In every well-functioning democracy, these and scores of other power monitors are penetrating the corridors of government and the nooks and crannies of civil society, and they often wrong-foot the lives of politicians, of parties, of legislatures, and whole governments, as we've seen recently. The consequence, democracy becomes much more than elections, though nothing less. It becomes a permanent process of naming, of praising, of shaming, of taming, and humbling of power except in Britain, or so it seems. For me, the lamentable fact is that we have fallen far behind the world's best democratic practices. A deep throat, a former SAS man, and a newspaper have together shown that our monitoring impulses are weak. Organized secrecy remains the hallmark of government, despite freedom of information legislation. We lack integrity commissions, an Australian invention, capable of exposing corrupt politicians, civil servants, and police. Where are the vigorously fought election primaries that would bring fresh air to the party's smoke-filled rooms? Why are there so few experiments in participatory budgeting or citizens' assemblies or public brainstorming forums? Why is there no local equivalent of Canada's 2006 Federal Accountability Act, an act that, for example, levels the playing field among political donors, cracks down on lobbyists, and improves protection for whistleblowers? The truth is, Peter Oborn is right about this, I believe, that many within the political establishment fear such innovations. They equate them with unstable government, or they condemn public scrutiny bodies as recipes for ruining Westminster-style government. 
The great irony, I believe, is that such innovations crafted to local conditions are now the only way our parliamentary democracy can regain public respect. What Britain needs, in other words, is a catch-up growth of monetary democracy. Much can be learned from the democratic innovations of countries as different as New Zealand or South Africa or Norway and, yes, India, a cutting-edge monetary democracy, by the way, whose parliament will shortly legislate for a minimum of one-third women members of the parliament uh, of the Lok Sabha at the national level and at the state levels. You may know that we are ranked 15th in the European Union and 68th in the world of democracies for the representation of women in the House of Commons. In other words, what's required are new ways of winning back public pride in our political institutions by bringing the country into a 21st century world where governments, parliaments and politicians understand that their job is to represent their citizens with integrity under the permanently watchful eyes of journalists, of judges, of experts and a wide range of public spirited bodies from age concern to plain stupid or plain nonsense, whose brief is to chasten politicians so that they don't fall into the arms of untruth and greed and hubris. There are, as we know, sets of proposals on the table. Uh, those, uh, many of those reforms, I think, are vital, and backed by innovations like the Supreme Court and a reconsideration of first-past-the-post system, which spawns governments backed by around only a quarter of adult citizens, they would make a big difference to our public life. But the trouble is that the versions now on the parliamentary table by the Brown government, I think, do indeed uh, resemble a smoke and mirrors expiation right of parties and leaders. They're saying sorry. Uh, such narrow reforms, I think, are also stuck in the old-fashioned thinking that supposes that parliamentary sovereignty outlined by Badgett 150 years ago is still intact or at least capable of being rebuilt or restored. It cannot be. During the coming weeks and months... Although there isn't much time, the main party's grip on reform should be broken. I agree with Helena Kennedy about this. Help will be needed from everybody, journalists, bloggers, public campaigns, jokes and satire will need to run rife. Vigils, rough music, as it was called in the 18th century, and constituency initiatives in support of smarter, more responsible candidates will have to be tried. Many more women will need to come into politics. It should not be business, political business as usual, but something like a 21st century version of the First World War era, long forgotten British Union of democratic control. It was probably the world's first citizens' effort to humble Parliament's sovereign war-making powers through public scrutiny. It was, it became a million-strong democratic initiative that counted among its paid-up supporters 15 ministers in the first ever Labour government of 1924. The new corruption can't be undone in 100 days, as Nick Clegg has proposed. They will not arise from a Phoenix Labour victory in a general election, and they will not emerge from David Cameron's talk of a post-bureaucratic age. Our troubles, I believe, bear strong parallels with a previous episode in the history of democracy. It's the only one I can think of, the deep disaffection with party politics that gripped the United States during the last quarter of the 19th century, that disaffection, you may know, as in our times, produced outbursts of anger, of populism, and xenophobia. But it also resulted in the directional election of senators, stronger and cleaner municipal government, the introduction of recall, and the full enfranchisement of women. These inventions altered forever the shape of American democracy, mainly by winning over hearts and minds to the principle that democracy, as Churchill argued on the floor of the House of Commons in a November 47 debate over the future powers of the House of Lords, is the least worst form of government. What are the chances of success of these kinds of bold reforms? Well, I've said in print, thin, papadom thin, probably. But then, you know, democratic politics is not just about closed doors, spin, petty larceny, towing the line. It is equally the art of humbling power, sometimes by achieving the, the impossible, especially when things look pretty hopeless as they currently do. Citizenesses and citizens, thank you very much for your attention. I much look forward to your comments. Okay, by, by way of relief, I'm going to let you ask some questions or make some statements. Who'd like to start? Thank you. Um, I was attracted by uh, Peter Oborn's comments um, about actually not necessarily throwing out the current system but enforcing the current system. And I do fear that to some extent that, to use a sort of ghastly cliche, there's a danger of throwing the baby out with the bathwater 
but I do think also that that's the deliberate intention of some people. And so these calls for reform should be checked in that spirit. Are people actually trying to undermine old systems we have here that have worked for the sake of new systems, that, sort of utopias that they want? A wonderful, a wonderful, wonderful statement of the essence of conservatism. Thank you very much. Uh, we'll go to the gallery first. Um, I agree that a fully elected House of Lords might just be doubling the problems we have already. But, I mean, surely the key question is what is the more rational way of appointing members of the House of Lords? And the question of whether the House of Lords should be 60 or 80 or 100% elected is just a distraction to that. And that's the one to which we should turn our minds. Thank you very much. Lady here. All the mem people have spoken have talked about more involvement by the public in our democracy. Would not the compulsion to vote at least make people feel more engaged? You could go and spoil your ballot paper, but you would at least feel that you were playing some part in the election process. Is anybody here an Australian who's actually voted on that system? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, mate. Does it work? <laughs> Um, uh, fine. Um, there's someone over there, hand-waving over there. Yes. Um, I wanted to ask the panellists if they were aware of a bill um, that's being mooted at the moment. It's the Elected Representatives Prohibition of Deception Bill. And um, if any of them had heard of it and what their thoughts were. Okay. It's a very sad bill. I know about it. Okay. I'm going to give you a chance in a second, actually. Where was the, where was the other... Um, I was wondering, with regards to Banners Kennedy's proposals on people's councils and, and so forth to get people more involved, would not any leaders of those actually become politicians and therefore um, endangering themselves of becoming acceptable for the same corruption, that all politicians would be power corrupts, to use another bad cliche, and giving someone power or any leadership will lead them to corruption? Helena Kennedy. Well, I, I just wanted to, to pick up on things that have come from the audience and have also come from John Keane, which is that there is no doubt that, that in mature democracies around the world, and I'm talking here about the United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, uh, <coughs> systems that are very similar to our own in, in many ways, um, what, what people are finding is that voting once every four or five years doesn't, isn't enough. And when it comes to the big issues, they want to be heard. And what, what people are saying just now about all of this corruption and so on is why should it be that the people themselves who are the beneficiaries of these systems should get to say how they should be reformed? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, that's what makes a nonsense of it. And so what, why one's talking about creating participatory processes where you actually, in many ways, it's like the area that I work in, where you have juries coming in and, uh, and deliberating on serious issues uh, like liberty of the subject. Why not have people from the electoral register up and down the country come together on something like hearing evidence about how would you reform the House of Lords to make it the most effective uh, 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 upper house? And I actually do think that then you hear, they would hear evidence, we would watch on television as people gave evidence to this, uh, perhaps several hundred people from around the country, from the electoral register, hearing the evidence, and then they're voting on what they think would make the most effective upper house. Now, I happen to believe that you shouldn't have people in an upper house who do not pay their taxes. Um, but, I but, the, but the truth about that is that it's, unfortunately, when I supported a bill to, to say that, that people who don't pay their taxes shouldn't be sitting in the House of Lords. Um, I asked the government why they weren't supporting this, and the truth is that there are non-DOMs who don't pay their taxes all around the House, on all the different sides of the House. So it's not one party, it's on different parties' benches, and those people are not paying their taxes. Why should they have a chance of legislating and you don't have that opportunity? Why should they be sitting and, and, and deciding and refining legislation when you don't? So there's something wrong with a system that allows that. Okay, can, can John... Can you come in? Please, please. Uh, two very quick remarks. First to uh, Helena. I, I think uh, it's clear to me that it's, uh, it would be a very unhappy outcome if the scenario that's currently proposed by the Brown government actually prevails, let's say if they win the next election, which is 
pretty unlikely, namely that um, constitutional reform, the next round of constitutional reform, picking up on what has happened since 97, would actually be monopolized by the dominant party in the government. I think that's wholly undesirable. And in this sense, one of my um, uh, grievances but positive contributions uh, in the last uh, month or so has been to, to, to ask um, British uh, publics to actually look at other practice outside. I, I mean, although it's true, as David Canadine uh, said very eloquently, very wittily, you know, we're, we, we pride ourselves on our second-rateness, but there is the flip side, the mother of parliaments, the belief that in Europe, you know, we're distinctive because we're so good at parliamentary democracy. And I think the, practice, the practices are falling badly behind. So, for instance, on the question of electoral reform, much can be learned from the New Zealand experience. It involved uh, a, a, an extended process of actually considering the best, uh, the best possible outcomes, and, and the outcome was rather remarkable. The Citizens' Assembly in British Columbia is another example. The other comment I wanted to make, um, partly triggered by the compulsory voting uh, point, which, by the way, um, at the federal level, um, was passed through the federal parliament in a, an 11-minute non-debate. It was very interesting because it was actually, in the Australian context, a finishing off, um, almost as engineers would do, of, of an electoral system that was just... It was thought by the election commissioners that that would be the way to complete the mechanical quality of, of uh, elections, just to make sure that everybody voted. It's much more straightforward. Okay, but um, one, one final remark. It seems to me that um, we haven't yet discussed the hollowing out of the basic central nervous system of the Westminster model. Party membership is at an all-time low compared with the 1920s. The Conservative Party membership is one-eighth what it was in the, in the days of Churchill when it was one of the great political machines of Europe. Labour Party membership down uh, five times. Um, the question is... Can uh, there be a restoration of uh, uh, an incitement of interest and involvement in political parties, or must we think, actually, much more laterally about the changing political geometry of democracy? I, that's the question I'd like to put on the, on the table. And it, if, is it a direct reply to this compulsory voting? Uh, if, you, if, you had, if you had a party list system for election in the House of Lords, uh, every member of the Labour Party would be in it. Party list systems is that, that one fears that it's going to be apparatchiks, um, you know, yes men and women who end up being on those lists. And so I am actually very against list systems, particularly closed list systems, where the parties get to choose the kind of people who end up being there, and you lose independent voices. Someone like me would never be on a party list system. Okay, at this happy note, um, uh, Vernon Bogdanov. Oh, Dave, do you want to come in at this point? All right, so I didn't realize you were first interrupting. Since Plato formulated the question, who shall guard the guardians, the notion of how you regulate the people who govern the country has exercised a philosophers and constructors of constitutions. Um, it's not the first time it's happened, um, and we shouldn't lose sight of that. This is a genuinely difficult and almost always intractable problem. That is not to defend the present system, which I think is not defensible. But it is worth noticing that the world we're living through is a particular exemplification of what has long, for several millennia, been recognised to be a very difficult problem for all nations with constitutions. And we shouldn't lose sight of that. Second point, I just want to make three very quick points. Upper House is, I think, very difficult. Uh, hereditary system not thought to be good. Uh, nomination system, cronyism. Uh, elected House um, thought to perpetuate or replicate the problems of the lower house, as I said earlier. All that said, Britain is just about the only country in the world where the electors aren't trusted to elect an upper house, except, interestingly, New Zealand, which has no second chamber at all. An outright abolition of the second chamber is not yet, as far as I'm aware, um, a subject up for discussion. Uh, the third point I think I want to make, um, while much... Um, has been said about outrage. How, and while I have not the remotest wish to defend any of the practices that have very admirably been exposed of late, how corrupt do we really think British politics is compared to many other countries at the moment? That's not to defend it, but let's have some perspective here. Is it more or less corrupt than America? Is it more or less corrupt than India? There's a long list here, and that's no justification of current practices. I must repeat, permanent outrage, uh, which is uh, a journalistic attribute. I don't know how they do it. It's terribly damaging for their health, but very good for their circulation, if you can understand that anatomical paradox. Um, we're, we're permanent outrage to... is not the basis on which to make thoughtful, considered judgments.
Peter, quickly. Very, very relevant here, actually, is Plato's solution to the issue of how to guard the guardians. He, he, he did envisage giving great powers to uh, an elite, but he, uh, on condition that they didn't own or possess uh, private property. Uh, and uh, that, of course, is our mistake. We allowed our guardians to uh, trade in houses and moats and... <laughs> Dog balls. Duck <laughs> Islands, yeah. Now, the, the Prince of Constitutional Reformers, Bernard Bogdanov. Uh, well, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I do think I have one qualification for talking about this subject in that uh, I suspect I'm the only member of the panel who, before the general election of 2005, was rung up by the editor of Cosmopolitan, <laughs> and I thought they wanted my photo on the front page of their election issue, but in fact it wasn't that. They asked me why it was that so few young women were voting in general elections. In the 2001 general election, of young women between 18 and 24, just 33%, one-third, voted. And they asked me what should be done about this, and on the phone, difficult to give a quick answer, but I said... Why don't you have interviews with the three party leaders on issues of interest to young women, publish the results and so on, and that will raise the turnout? Well, you may say that's a typical academic sort of fallacy, uh, because they did that, but the turnout in 2005 amongst young women was exactly the same, at 33%. Young men a bit higher, 39%. The turnout as a whole in the last two elections was the lowest we've had since universal suffrage, and, of course, that's understandable because in a lot of seats there's no point in voting because they are safe seats. Uh, you'd have to be a very bold person if you thought that you could help remove the Conservatives in Bournemouth or the Labour Party in Durham. And uh, we've heard a lot of talk about party lists and how awful they are, but, uh, in fact, you have a one-person party list if you're the Conservative candidate for Durham... Uh, sorry, the Conservative candidate for Bournemouth or the Labour candidate for Durham... And here in Kensington and Chelsea, uh, Malcolm Ripkin's an enormously able MP, but frankly, you wouldn't need to be enormously able to win Kensington and Chelsea <laughs> for the Conservatives. Um, now, uh, so this is one, one thing wrong with British democracy, that people simply are voting much less. Another thing wrong that uh, has already been pointed out is that we don't anymore belong to political parties. Fifty years ago, one in 11 of us belonged to a political party. Now just one in 88 of us do. Political parties are dying on their feet. Now the question to ask is, who is to blame for this? Is it the people or is it our institutions? Now, uh, if you look at people's other voluntary activities, we can see a flourishing civic society around 40% of us belong to some voluntary organisation. And amongst 18 to 24-year-olds, the very group who don't vote, 3 million people volunteer every year. And uh, surveys show they're more likely to participate in voluntary activities than older people. So it's not that they're not civically conscious, it's that they're not interested in the current political structure. 81% of British adults gave to the tsunami appeal more than in America and two to three times the rate of many European countries. And not only the National Trust, but the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds has more members than all of the political parties put together. <laughs> so I don't think we can blame the people. And if we can't blame the people, we have to blame the institutions. It's a bit odd in any case to blame the people it's all somewhat reminiscent of the famous quip of the German playwright Bertolt Brecht after the 1953 uprising in East Germany when he said the government has lost confidence in the people. Therefore, it must dissolve the people and seek a new people. <laughs> and so my conclusion is that in Britain the democratic spirit is healthy enough but the institutions in which that spirit is reflected are at fault and that we need, therefore, to open up our democratic system. Now, we've had, of course, a huge range of constitutional reforms since 1997. Indeed, I think you could say an era of constitutional reform, but they haven't done much to cure apathy and disenchantment. And I think the reason is obvious. 
because they've tended to redistribute power between elites, between elites in London and elites in Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland, and between the political elite and the judicial elite, between the judges. You may say that the process of constitutional reform has been the officer class deciding how it's going to divide up the spoils. But what we haven't had is a redistribution of power downwards to open up the system because in the past people would vote for political parties because they wanted to secure change. But now people believe that they can be agents of change themselves. And therefore, we have to open up the system to take account of that. Because the era of pure representative democracy under which we lived through the 20th century is coming to an end. People are no longer prepared simply to vote once every four or five years and then leave it to the politicians. They are no longer deferential towards elected politicians in the way they were. And we mustn't have a golden age view of politics. In the past, people were very ignorant. In the late 1940s, for example, a survey was undertaken, and half of those in the survey could not name a single British colony. So we mustn't assume that there was a golden age of the past. People then were less educated and far more deferential. But now, uh, people are not prepared to accept what you might call guided democracy, and particularly young people are no longer prepared to accept that. So we must reform the system by introducing primary elections, an electoral system that enables all to participate, that does away with the safe seat, more direct democracy, more referendums, more initiatives, and a people's convention, because, as Helena Kennedy has said very eloquently, the Constitution doesn't belong to the government, it belongs in a democracy to all of us. Thank you. And now for not quite the local MP, Markham Rivkin. Ladies and gentlemen, I rather resent Vernon Bogdanor's rather snide reference to Kensington and Chelsea. Let me remind him that my constituency is unique. On a Friday, every other member of Parliament leaves London and goes to their second home in the country. In my case, in Kensington and Chelsea, all my constituents leave London and go to their second homes in the country. And let me just also make clear where I come from. I have been forced to be virtuous. I, along with other central London members of Parliament, can't even claim a second home allowance, even if I wanted to, so I'm able to be delightfully objective on these matters. Now, I am conscious that members of Parliament are not flavour of the month, to put it mildly. But do not think there was ever a golden age. Two and a half thousand years ago, Aristophanes said, you have to see the characteristics of a popular politician. A horrible voice, bad breeding, and a vulgar manner. <laughs> but just occasionally, members of parliament get their own back. My favourite MP was an MP during the Victorian age who was urged by his, MP, uh, his constituents to vote against a new excise tax. He refused to do so, and they proceeded to deselect him, at which he wrote an open letter to his constituents in the local paper, which said, amongst other things, with regard to what you say about the excise tax, may God's curse light upon you all, and may he make your homes as open to the excise man as your wives and daughters have always been to me. <laughs> Now, against that background, I am very conscious that what Peter Arborn said about the expenses scandal is indeed correct. It has been a ghastly, awful period which has done untold damage to Parliament and to Parliament's reputations, and I say through clenched teeth that the Daily Telegraph did a good service uh, in publicising these uh, matters. There's no doubt about it. But I also agree with David Kennedy that we have to get this in perspective. When you look at corruption in Italy and France and many other countries around the world, it involves millions of pounds and huge issues at stake. What is the most embarrassing, what is most awful about this scandal is the embarrassing triviality of many of the claims that were made, and I don't have to remind you of what some of those were. That particular problem, 
is ghastly, was ghastly, but it, that is soluble and is already being solved. This speaker is resigning next Sunday. Some ministers have already gone, MPs have been deselected, and every single member of parliament will face the verdict of their electors within 11 months at the very most. And I can assure the speaker in the, in the audience, it won't come back again because the rules have already now been changed so that every claim by an MP in future, every claim, will be transparent and on the internet, and that will concentrate the mind wonderfully, and the fees office will disappear and an independent uh, control of these matters will be substituted for it. So I have no doubt this particular drama will be resolved, although the memory of it will do great harm for many years. But sometimes out of bad can come good. And it seems to me there are two fundamental issues that need to be referred to of a more positive kind that ought to be taken forward and in some respects already are. And that is, first of all, the greater public control over Parliament, but secondly also the greater control that Parliament needs to resume over the executive. Now, what we start off with is a situation where already the idea of the electorate voting once every five years and then forgetting about it, that's no longer relevant because the electorate have already shown it. I was out of Parliament for eight years. When I came back in 1995, it was already transformed thanks to the Freedom of Information Act, thanks to emailing, thanks to the internet. There are ways in which MPs already have been exposed to public scrutiny of a kind that simply was not possible in the past and that will become dramatically greater in the years to come. And that is good and right and proper. But, uh, so public will exert, and rightly so, a greater control over Parliament. But Parliament actually has to resume proper control over the executive, over the government of the day. Just remember just a bit of history. What happened for most of our history was originally the government was the king's government. And Parliament battled with the Crown during the Civil War. And then gradually, the government became more part of Parliament. Parliament voted its money. Parliament could dismiss governments by votes of no confidence. And so a division existed between the King on one hand and the government and Parliament on the other. And in those times, right up to 100 years ago, government and Parliament were on the same side, against the monarch. But that is no longer relevant. The Crown has no power, apart from with regard to the future of the Chelsea barracks, it would appear. <laughs> but in all the serious matters, government and Parliament is where power lies. But government controls Parliament. And so my final point I need to make in this very short period of time is this. What we need to do is for Parliament to resume the control it has lost to governments over, the, over not just 50 years, but over several hundred years. Most people don't realize it's the government that decides the business of Parliament every week. 99% of the business is decided by the government. It is the government that appoints the chairman of select committees. It is the government that decides whether ministers can be summoned to a select committee to be scrutinized by that select committee. It is the government that decides how much time is going to be allowed for debate on bills, and many have very little time, and it is the government through the whipping system that determines how people vote, not just on the major issues on which an election has been fought. I don't mind being whipped uh, when there has been a, a major issue. <laughs> I better rephrase that. That's the sort of thing my journalist colleagues will quote out of context. You can, you can be certain of that. Uh, but I do not mind the whipping system when it requires discipline for MPs as to issues on which they fought and won a general election. But on a whole range of other issues, the government, if it is not a matter of confidence, should be able to be more confident in having to persuade people to vote rather than require them to vote uh, through a whipping system. So I conclude that what we need, therefore, in some respects, is already happening through modern technology, through emails, through internet, through the Freedom of Information Act. The idea of an elective dictatorship, as Badgett referred to, has no longer any sustenance and is being slowly and remorselessly removed, and the quicker that happens, the better. But what we've hardly begun to do is to resume Parliament's control over the government. And this is itself not necessarily a new issue. Way back in 1780, Mr. Dunning persuaded the House of Commons to pass a resolution that the influence of the Crown has increased, is increasing, and needs to be diminished. Substitute Crown for government or government for crown, and you will describe the imperative today that would not only resolve many of the issues that have been raised rightly in this debate, but it would also enable us, both us as MPs as well as those who send us to Parliament, to think of Parliament as a champion of the people's interest rather than an enemy of the people's interest. Thank you.
Thank you very much, Malcolm. And lastly, David Aronovich. Uh, Peter Oborn said a couple of things at the beginning of his entertaining but preposterous tirade um, <laughs> that I just wanted to deal with. The first, obviously, was that David uh, Canadine is a brilliant teacher. I concede that David Canadine is a brilliant historian, a brilliant speaker. But since the only evidence we have of his capacity as a teacher is actually Peter Oborn... <laughs> Peter Oborn was my one failure. I intend... <laughs> but that, too, is a form of scrutiny, after all. Uh, the second point he made, however, uh, that I want to draw on is, is one I agree with. Uh, you don't have to connect the two parts of the proposition you've had in front of you. I'd argue that the system isn't rotten. Um, and no, Helena, they... MPs have not been abusing a system of expenses. I mean, as a straight matter of fact, they have been overusing a system of allowances. Um, it might be a bad system, but it is a very, very different thing. It is not because there is gross moral turpitude, as Peter Oborn would have you believe, that explains why all this has happened, but rather it is actually symptomatic of something else, this, what I would say, is dramatic overreaction. Uh, and it is symptomatic of a simple fact, which is that we hate them. Um, we do. We hate the government, we hate the politicians, we don't much like any of the political parties, and we suspect anybody who thinks that they should be set up in power over us, and we particularly hate them for soliciting our votes. Um, and what's interesting is that they hate us back. <laughs> They're far too polite to say so, but when you talk to MPs individually, the demands that are placed upon them by constituents are absolutely absurd. People coming to them asking about the problems of tarmacking their drive and so on. They also think that we're capricious uh, and that we're apathetic, exactly as has been described. So what we're describing here is not a system in which you blame one side or the other. What we're talking about is a dysfunctional relationship, and it's that relationship that must be reformed. And that's why I say, though the system is not rotten, it must be utterly changed from top to bottom. It, does, it no longer works. Now, Helena Kennedy, when she chaired the power inquiry in the report introduced some very interesting statistics. And one of the ones that caught my eye while I was going over it today was that in 1964, uh, firstly, party memberships, people said, now stands at a quarter of what it did in 1964. And actually, that figure will have gone down substantially. But in 1964, 44% of British electors described themselves as identifying very strongly with a political party. By 2001, this had dropped to 14%. Our notion of affiliation has completely changed within that time. And as that report suggested, the Power Inquiry report, our expectations about our areas of autonomous choice, what we ourselves choose, and what politics should be, have also totally changed, with one big difference. We don't somehow see ourselves in the political picture. I want to come back to that in a moment. John Keane, in his absolutely brilliant book, The Life and Death of Democracy, has, as he suggested here, codified that into a systemic change. We've changed to a system of monetary democracy. Not just here, but internationally. Now, one of the things, if you believe that such a change may have taken place and that such a, a, a change needs to be recognised, that you must do is you must make it easier for people to participate in the formal representative political process. Yes, you must. You must have some form of electoral reform. And how bizarre it is, is, is it that people will tell you that the British people are capable of everything except putting one, two, three, four, five on a list of preferences, which actually, functionally, they argue, makes us less intelligent than the Scots. Malcolm, I'm not prepared to accept it. <laughs> but... Left on its own, this just allows us to continue with the form of prince sacrifice, which is that every time the crops fail, we throw a prince from the top of the tower of Tukutetlan or whatever after having ripped his heart out first, which is the way in which we like to deal with our politicians. Um, you can see it in Carol Ann Duffy's latest poem about the horror of politics. Now, this is the poet laureate we're talking about, as if poetry was somehow a very, uh, uh, was a very clean sport, which, as we've learned, it's not. <laughs> No, the relationship that I think that has to be changed has to be what we 
as individuals in society and collectively do in politics. And this is something that Simon Jenkins has been writing about for some time. And I now take an 180-degree turn. I was very dubious about the value of deep down going back devolution down to communities and indeed to individuals. Let me give you an example of why. Uh, an O'Bornian man, a member of the English Democrats, uh, was elected mayor of Doncaster in these latest uh, local elections. Here's a short excerpt of his interview with Radio Sheffield. Toby Foster says to him, one of the big things in your campaign was you're going to cut PC jobs. Which jobs are those? O'Bornian man. Well, uh, I'm going to look into that. Things like diversity officers, the things that are usually advertised in the Manchester, well, it's not the Manchester Guardian now, in the Guardian. Oh, I mean, I can't give you a full list at the moment, but I will. But that's what you put on your manifesto. You must have had an idea on your manifesto what you were talking about. Yeah, yeah. All these people who are sort of controlling thought processes and this sort of thing, and uh, every department is riddled with this sort of nonsense these days. So, sees us. Currently, then, this morning, Doncaster Council is riddled with people who are doing this kind of nonsense. People are go- and they're on notice, are they? People are going to lose their jobs, very likely. But we don't know who they are, but certainly diversity officers. Obviously, well, that sort of thing, yes. So the diversity officers getting ready for work this morning at Doncaster might as well not bother. Well, he's in employment at the moment, but he won't be for long. Well, I think, I think we ought to be talking about what we're going to do sort of now, and what I've discovered, that might be a more fruitful discussion. Now, at one point, I'd have said, it's a terrible system that allows an English Democrat to be mayor of Doncaster. But actually reviewing it and seeing that the same monetary process is accorded to him, and therefore the actual politics of the saloon bar bore can be, can be in addressed by a journalist just as they did the sort of, you know, the grandees of the political system has changed, partially changes my mind. We are going to have to take responsibility for things other than just our own individual consumer choices. That's my view. I think budgets for schools should be completely put down to schools, uh, uh, put down to schools, and that a majority of parent governors should be entitled to spend that money. Now, the effect of that will be to galvanise the other parents as soon as those parent governors do half the stupid things that they will do in the first five years. In other words, it's the capacity to be stupid. It's the capacity to make wrong decisions. We need a period of experimentation at a local level with different forms. Citizens' juries are ones, but there are many, many others which experiment with and invite people into a process where things actually change and where the cost of them not being involved becomes immediately apparent when they see the decisions that people around them have made. Now, of course, Jurassic Conservatives like Peter O'Bourne will oppose it and Baldwin-esque ones like Malcolm Rifkind will. And unfortunately, John, the satirists will not be on our side. Satirists are conservatives uh, uh, always. Nevertheless, we have to think about this in a far more systematic way than we ever have done before. Nope. People in the system are not rotten. They're just the scapegoats. They're just the people who are operating it now. What is wrong is the system. It isn't modern enough. It hasn't kept up. We need to alter it completely. Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligent Square podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.